Hi everyone, welcome to our 26th podcast. Today I am with Dr. Angus Mugford. Hi Angus, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Thanks for, for having me. No, you're welcome. It's uh, it's always exciting and I'm, I'm excited and I know other people are also excited to hear your views about what you're doing. Um, I think you've got you know some fantastic roles where you are. Um, so if you could just start, tell everyone a bit about your background, um, what you've done, where you are now, and, and then we can move on with the podcast. Sounds great. Well, yeah, thanks for, for having me and uh, exciting to share my story a little bit, but um, this has definitely been a, a lifelong dream for me uh, to really be working with athletes on, on the, the mental side of the game. And um, I'm glad that there are a lot of people also interested in pursuing it. It's definitely not, not easy and I would never have predicted to be in the situation I'm in, but certainly very grateful. Um, probably detect I've got what we call a mid-Atlantic accent, um, originally from the UK, but um, but I've been over here in the States now for about um, uh, about 15 years, actually. So all of my grad school training was was done over here in the US. And um, fortunate that the last 11 years now, I've, I've been here at the IMG Academy, which for most Brits is probably uh, synonymous with Nick Boletari, um, the tennis coaching legend. And the likes of Maria Sharapova and Andre Agassi is, is really where all of that began. But um, we actually have a thousand student athletes from the ages of about 10 to 18 um, who train here across the eight different sports from football and American football and basketball, baseball, golf, tennis. Um, we have uh, track and field, AKA athletics, um, as well as lacrosse. And Really, it is a, it's a sports utopia for, for these student athletes who have a shot at going pro. Um, reality is about 2% of our student athletes go pro. and uh, But we have a massively high percentage who are going on to play Division One college sports, um, which really is an equivalent of the professional realm um, when we're looking at some of the, the sporting opportunities in the UK. But I've also been able to expand that into... Um, working with a lot of uh, professional athletes here too who come here as a training base and and I think maybe the key thing that makes us a little bit different here is it's um, is it's full-time applied work so there are 10 mental coaches here um, that I help uh, mentor and, and manage and um, we are part of a 45 person strong human performance team so it's a very collaborative environment working with strength and conditioning sports medicine nutrition um, leadership and mental training as well as our, our coaching staff here so we are we are truly blessed and lucky to to be doing this day in day out wow 45 people is a, is a big team and i'm guessing you you look after them don't you or, or, or in charge of it aren't you well i my role is uh, really focusing more on the mental performance um side of it. Uh, a, a fellow Brit, David Hesse, um, who actually did his training at Loughborough and, and Edinburgh, um, he is actually uh, running and, and looks after the operations and strategy for for that human performance wide team, um, whereas my focus is more on helping grow our, our mental performance and leadership teams, especially on um, on the outside of campus. So this is more of the applying our our lessons and and concepts and training to 
um, the military to corporations as well as professional sport and, and um, development opportunities outside of that too. So we kind of split a lot of that load, but um, we're, we're both in a very fortunate position. And again, quite, somewhat ironic, um, both of us coming from the UK and, and uh, but making Florida our new home. Well, no, it sounds, um, it sounds great. Now, I wanted to... Um to see what your thoughts are on um, you know, cultural differences and, and how people where you are in Florida perceive sports psychology. Um, did you notice any differences when you were out there in terms of coaches or athletes maybe being a bit more accepting or, or not more accepting or, or were there no differences when you worked with, with people where you are? It, that's a great question. And I think here at the academy, it, it truly is pretty unique because we have just a massively international population here. So it's not like an American sports academy in as much as we have 80 different countries represented between our athletes and coaches. So it really is a melting pot. Um, what's different about it is that people who are on scholarship or paying to be here are committed to their sport. And so, and that comes with a full breadth of resources and people who are, you know, 24 seven, you know, really trying to make that, that dream come true. Um, I think there's a broader, if we step back, um, if you're talking more about kind of cultural or, or societal expectations on sport, um, the main difference I've seen from my, um, I guess training and, and things in the UK and my experience of sport there compared to the United States is the level of investment that's expected. So I think growing up, I was always conscious of the, um, you know, bringing 50p to training or something to your, you know, your coach or, you know, and that um, it really should be done for free. Um, and this amateur ethos and ideal that I think goes back to, to kind of that Olympic ideal of amateur status whereas here in the states there really is an expectation that you know you pay coaches and um and that you expect professional level support and even at high school you know you're talking about hundreds and thousands sometimes um spectators coming to watch um matches you know games we have um a stadium for five thousand people um you know to watch high school football games and i remember playing at the University of Birmingham and rugby and American football, and there may be like 10 people standing on the side. Um, you know, so it's a very different cultural expectation around sport. Um, and, and I think that's where I've seen it the most. And have you seen, I mean, in terms of, um, firstly, if, if someone's to be, um, for instance, if they were qualified here, um, BPS or bases, are they um, qualified in America um, to work with athletes? And, have you seen, um, is it the same where there are a lot of people working in sport in America where they are calling themselves mind coaches or performance gurus where they aren't qualified? I mean, what are your thoughts on that as well? And sorry for the sorry for the two questions at once. It just came to my mind. No problem. I think there, there are a lot of factors to consider here. And I think, and there's three C's that, that uh, I think of here. One is, one is credentials. So having credentials, another is credibility and the third is competence so and the reason I'm, I'm very specific about those three is because sometimes i think people get blinded by credentials um 
And the problem is for people who don't have credentials, um, you know, there can often be a, a knowledge gap, an experience gap. And really, I think when you're talking about mind coaches, gurus, whatever you want to say, there's, there's just a massive spectrum. There's some unbelievable and fantastic um, practitioners who don't have credentials. And then there are some horrific um, people. The, the problem is that there's no regulation. Hmm. Um, and ultimately, you may be extremely competent and, um, and have a lot of credibility with coaches and, and um, players or, or clients um, and not have credentials. However, I would say on the flip side, just because you have credentials, um, hopefully your supervision and pathway is such that you have competence, but that does not mean that you have credibility. Um, and I know plenty of people, unfortunately, who, who maybe have great credentials, but um, can't stand in front of a group and, and deliver a message or, or be effective in their actual applied work. So I think it's, it's less simple than, than people might make out. And I think all of those aspects are important, which um, certainly as I, um, in my new upcoming role as, as president of ASP and, and the Association of Applied Sports Psychology is really focusing on being, um, is being open and broad, the fact that credentializing and, and embracing standards for the field is, is hugely important as well as connecting the message to clients and consumers and organizations so that they have a clear understanding of the scope of services and things we can provide but also to reinforce that just because people have credentials does not mean that they have credibility and credibility and competence so to be able to share best practice and, and provide training and resources to help people improve their ability to deliver and, and make great connections with people. I must say, I like the three C's. I think other people are going to like it as well. I think that's, um, you know, I, I like that approach to it. And it, it does make you think and sort of sit back. And I do think there are, you know, other younger people I swear to, I think sometimes we get a bit too hung up on it um, in the sense that people are training and doing things out there. Um, and it is, you know, knowing those things. Um, but also, um, bring back to the, the the first question, which I've nearly forgot. In terms of um, if people were qualified and they they were looking to come to America, do you need to do any extra qualifications, or um, are you? Sure. Yeah. So, sorry for skipping past. No, that no, that's question. my it's my fault for asking both. So I apologize. <laughs> no, I think maybe part of the reason I skipped over it is because it's difficult, um, and and I think actually it's less to do with uh, applied sports psychology more to do with um, uh, immigration and naturalization. So, you know, I think perhaps like an American who wanted to come and work over the, in the United Kingdom, um, actually the red tape is significant um, and it's not as simple as just getting a job. Um, having said that, actually, I think when you are going through the university system, um, it's a lot more forgiving and uh, a lot easier. I think if you're looking at, uh, you know, joining a business or, or something of that nature, it can get very complicated and very expensive in a hurry. Um, so certainly doing your homework and, and looking at those kinds of things is huge. Um, and a lot of people who 
kind of came here for graduate school or, or some kind of qualifications and and were able to get some work experience that turned into um, full-time opportunities. But um, it is it is difficult when you're talking about making that professional transition. The one thing I would say, though, on the, in terms of actual qualifications here, licensure and the clinic and the, well, the protected term of psychology is is pretty serious. Uh, I think it's happening much more so in the UK, although I haven't been there for a long time. Um, and uh, here is one of the reasons that our division um, here at the academy is called mental conditioning is that none of our team of 10 people are, are licensed psychologists. Um, and that's purely because we are not practicing mental health um, you know, therapy or treatment. Uh, we are education-based um, professionals with training in psychology. Uh, most of the team are certified um, ASP consultants, you know, three of us with PhDs, but, um, but that's not what we do. So, you know, the naming aspect of it um, is key in, in that we are mental conditioning coaches. And um, I've had some other people who are mental performance specialists, so you get into the naming and credentializing thing. Um, but in terms of the role, there's the scope of work that's, that's really important to identify. Okay, brilliant. And I, I wanted to come back to, um, you said at the academy that only 2% um, make it. In terms of, I mean, I'm, I'm comparing here to either maybe football or, or other sports here that often we see that players won't make it and then they aren't supported. Do you... Do the players who don't make it are they still supported for you know months or maybe years after or, or given help or or maybe you know people that they're contacted to see how they're doing? Does that happen a bit more? Sure. Well, I, first of all, I would actually re I would redefine redefine parameters around what you said, and I would I would say it's very close to hundred percent make it. Um, I think two percent will become professional athletes, and I think the key then. It's really defining what is making it, hmm. and for us, the transition is is typically is to help them be the best athlete they can be and the best person they can be. Um, but typically, that's going to be through the college forum. And just to give you a little bit of perspective and scale on on what it means to play college athletics over here, um, when I, uh, I I was part of this thing called um, NFL Europe or World League, American football in the United Kingdom. And uh, we trained in uh, Crystal Palace. And, you know, I, uh, it was an amazing experience being part of that national squad. And we, we went from there and, and I went to the University of Kansas to do my master's degree. And, and this was 1997. And the athletic uh, department at the University of Kansas, which I'm sure for not many Brits have heard of before, um, the annual budget for those 12 sport teams in that department was $45 million. Wow. Now, I don't know what the budget was for the British Olympic Association, probably <laughs> at that same time, but I'd be willing to bet it wasn't far off. Um, and so just the scale, you know, 60 plus thousand people coming to watch their college American football games, um, 20,000 in a stadium millions watching on TV for their basketball team at Kansas it was very very strong team um, 
that it, it truly is a, a professional environment that, that also typically for our athletes comes with a, a college uh, scholarship and an opportunity. So, so for us, that that is the dream for for a lot of the um, the athletes and players coming through here. Um, although there's a significant investment that comes with um, with paying the tuition and then things here, but no doubt the to, to your real point in the question is is the players who fail to live up to the dream and expectation of becoming a pro, and certainly that's. Um, that's where we're really trying to develop these tools and focus on athletes transitioning to to the next thing um, and for us completing school and getting their education and understanding the tools that they're developing in sport are, are key for their life as well and i think that's one probably benefit that the u.s system has over the british where where if there's a club or an academy setting that sometimes those kids are leaving at 16 or 18 without any kind of educational qualifications whereas the pipeline for a lot of american pro sports mean that they're leaving college with education but not a professional contract um and i think that that's obviously a very different um different uh setup it's uh, it was interesting i mean i, I can't believe that you said 45 million <laughs> i was shocked um but it, it is um, very different and I you know I do speak to younger people about the you know who do wish they were playing in America with the college system and things like that. I can imagine it is very competitive um, at the same time it's not easy to get um, places but it's very interesting um, to learn about it. I'm interested to know um, and I've, I've never spoken to a you know practitioner about this in terms of in terms of workshop delivery. I, I know there's a lot of sports psychologists who listen and trainees who listen and um, same with with coaches. In terms of um, your delivery, or if you were to ever do group workshops, would you ever do you have any tips for any you know people delivering things? I know a lot of people want to try and make sessions very practical in terms of teaching certain aspects or certain psychological tools. Um, what are your sort of views on that? Sure, yeah, and, and I've I've had the, I mean, I obviously have the privilege of working with an amazing team here with with a variety of different strengths and. And mentoring a lot of people coming up out of graduate school programs and who are learning the art or, or the practice and delivery of all this great knowledge and, and science and training that, that we have. I think perhaps one of the most important tips I give is probably a little bit silly, but um, it's the fact that people don't pay attention to boring things. Um, and and I think it's don't forget the art of engagement and what we call here edutainment. Um, and you know it's you can have the best information and facts and tools in the world, but if people aren't bought in or if they're disengaged, it doesn't matter. Um, so I think finding ways to really to be powerful, make a connection, be fun, um, and, and really simple is actually really important and so some you know not trying to achieve too much in the session by delivering lots of great content um, sometimes you're actually well better served by really focusing on one thing that's engaging fun powerful and, and easy for someone to translate into a, a practical setting and, and so they can be empowered to to own it and, and master it oh, brilliant and in terms of um 
your approach do you take working with athletes um you know and i like to explore this in terms of either cbt or psychodynamic do you have a specific approach that you like to use or or more sort of um geared towards i think if you're if you're talking theor- theoretical frameworks and, and such i think we we operate here on a, a combination of a basic humanistic uh approach but we're really using a lot of cognitive behavioral tools um and so each of us you know bring a, a different experience and skill set to the table but but we're very educational in our our focus and getting people to think and understand about concepts but be be able to act you know be able to um act on that and and start impacting their behavior whether it's on the court or the field or what have you and so our educational framework is is three basic steps of of education so taking a concept often in the classroom um but then the next session may be its application so it's really you know taking the tools and integrating that into some kind of practice and then support which is where they're developing some autonomy we're working with coaches where we're utilizing reflection and feedback um sometimes in a dynamic session uh, or it could be video review of match play and and um really having uh, having them reflect and support us support them with uh with integration of, of what they're trying to put together. And in terms of the, the sessions um, or the amount of contact time that you'll have the, with the athletes, um, I mean, I'm guessing at the academy that they get um, support in terms of strength and conditioning and nutrition and other aspects, or am I completely wrong? No, I think that that's one of the things that makes this place special, for okay. sure, because from a cultural standpoint, um, you know they're competing in their sport roughly uh three hours a day so training um three hours a day uh strength and conditioning and movement program is usually at least four times a week um the fifth typically being active recovery uh, and then mental training is also integrated at once a week formally so that may be classroom it may be court but it's some designated um activity and time with a mental coach who's dedicated to that sport um like i said we have eight sports and a lot of teams a thousand student athletes and we divide those so that um different um mental coaches here have have different skill sets and they focus on on each specific one but um they uh they will also have that's formal time we also spend time observing and also doing live coaching so we'll be there uh, at practices or, or competition and sideline um, and be able to provide some live coaching support um, with, with players as well, which is, which is great. Again, another reason that we're spoiled and we have that much access. Um, but I think one of the cool things I reflect back on as a young mental coach is just imagine being in an environment where you have, let's say, a 12-year-old tennis player and mental training is just part of what they do. You know, it's it's not about being messed up. You, you know, you it's just part of how you train, how you, how you get better. And I think that's what really sets us up for success is is getting that level <clears throat> buy-in from the leadership, from the coaches, and and from the whole system that it's it's fueled into what we do and how we train. And it's interesting because I'm I'm thinking here in terms of you know how many sports psychologists go 
go to training sessions or or to competitions and, and different things and how many have a very um you know similar setup and I mean, I was going to ask, do the athletes accept it I mean, in a sense that, they, you know, they're very keen to learn more and, you know, they're willing and, and they realise the benefits and the sort of the, the, the power that it can bring in terms of, you know, improving their performance? I think um, buy-in is something we should always be aware of. Um, and I think here it's very strong because, again, it's, it's now become part of the fabric. Of, of what we do you know it's on the schedule it's uh, the coaches integrate with us all the time um and so it's a very comfortable um cultural um phenomenon but i think you can never take it for granted and that's where kind of the we come back to the three c's for a second you know it's, it's still all about your credibility and and um but also your engagement and and how uh just like anyone, any given day, some days you're going to be really engaged and motivated and other days you're not. Um, and so when you're talking about things like emotional control and motivation, we need to remember um, that it, that's a daily thing. And and so we really need to bring our A game and, and make sure that um, people buy in every day. Um, so I think that, that it goes both ways. And do, do you think here in England that maybe, you know, sports psychologists, whether you're, you're bases or BPS, that we maybe need to take more responsibility and look at ourselves and say, well, what are we doing in terms of looking at maybe the three C's and, and not sort of thinking too much of, well, that club doesn't want me or they don't want sports psychology at all, that maybe it's how we approach things and we've got to do things a bit differently. Um, you know, we need to look at things such as engagement, how we can motivate um, and bind. Do you think... Because I'm looking at it as though in, in comparison to where you are, um, it seems that sports psychology is doing, um, I don't think, very well. Um, whereas you've got certain sports here where it's not accepted still um, and it, we're struggling. Um, but I'm sort of saying, you know, do we maybe need to look at ourselves as a, as a group and as a, as a culture and say, well, how can we change that and what can we do as sports psychologists to try and shift that? I think even if you're if you're dominating it and, and doing great, I think you always need to look at yourself and see what, what can you do better. I mean, I think we, as professionals in this field, we we need to embody um, what we're preaching. You know, the adage of practice what you preach, I think that's first and foremost. If we can't reflect and, and look at how we improve and, and um, strive individually and collectively then we're not doing our job effectively but um i think don't get me wrong there are certainly barriers and, and cultural shifts here that that still um you know have a ways to go but i think if you're waiting for a culture to change you're going to be waiting a long time mm. um we need to be able to embrace where people are and know you may not be the right fit or they may not not be ready but i think that um that you're looking at yourself and, and what you can change and contribute. Um, those were great lessons that I certainly learned here. I'm, I'm one of my mentors here about how can I also, how can I bring value? How can I um, bring value to an organization or to a client and um, understand what they need and understand where they are and in that process too. And most uh, definitely, and I, you know, I think I always think value is very important. As you know, me training or, or speaking to others, and I 
I think we need to sometimes prove ourselves. Um, and brilliant. I was going to ask you about earlier that we you spoke about um, mental health um, and and saying that you know if, if people had issues like that, I'm guessing you would have clinical psychologists come in and deal with things. Um, and I was interested to know: Do you still, um, where you are, do all your coaches still take that into account in, in terms of that you you look at well-being and mental health, and you believe that the things that you do, um, you, you know, maybe trying to prevent it by if you're teaching coping skills or goal settings, um, do you still look at those aspects? Yeah, well, we have we definitely have a very interdisciplinary approach. So we have. Uh really comprehensive team so while we have a thousand student athletes we also have about 700 staff wow. and um, and so across that staff we have school teachers we have coaches um, but we also have a lot of administration we have the health services division um, and we actually meet every couple of weeks with a um, psychologist from a, a external clinical practice but who have an office inside and that uh, we share from vantage points of uh, the school of our um, learning resource center, we call it, which is, I guess, for, for some of the special needs, but also then from the sports, from, uh, from our viewpoint, as well as um, the, the physical health services and the mental health services, and literally identify students um, uh, where there are concerns. I mean, we also have a residence um, and student life support team, so dorm staff or dorm mentors, if you like, and so really try to connect the dots to make sure that you know students aren't um, falling between the cracks, and that if there are challenges or issues in school, you know what went on in the other areas of that student's life, um, and so we try to be comprehensive and evolved as we can, and and there's sometimes overlap, and I think that's where. The mental conditioning team, you know, being proactive and embedded um, is really key because they can literally, you know, be the face, if you like, and, and conduit with the coach in the sport. Um, but they sometimes are the bridge to be able to get that clinical support that they need, you know, that's beyond the scope of our um, function and job and, and be able to, you know, help them see that mental health isn't something to be swept under the carpet or ignored or um, that it's really just an aspect of, of being a healthy person and and, uh, and helping. And, and so obviously there are a lot of barriers to that sometimes. People may be more reluctant, mm. but I think when they have a relationship um, with coaches and people already and can talk about the mental game, um, that it, that's an easier bridge, an easier thing to, to make a connection to. I mean, it, it sounds just like an absolutely incredible setup. I wish I was an athlete there um, in some ways. Um, it, it sounds brilliant, and, and the support and the way it's organised and structured sounds sounds um, fantastic. I was going to ask you, we, we, didn't, we haven't spoken about this much, your um, position as um, president at the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, what, um, what, what do you do or what, what does that position entail? Well, it, it, honestly, it's, it's very new for me. So right now, I literally, the, we just had the elections this summer. And so um, at the upcoming conference in Indianapolis in October um, will be my official first first term. And, and we have three presidents currently serving and one will be leaving as I go in. Um, I think, you know, the key 
part for me is I'm really excited about a group of people on the executive board there who are excited to make a difference. And I think we are at a key time in the United States, um, North America, and probably somewhat the world as far as um, really collaborating across a diverse skill set of sports like people. So we talked before about researchers, we talk about people with a clinical background, we talk about people more with an education and kind of kinesiology background. There's room for everybody there. Um, and I think that the emphasis on where can we best serve people. Um, there was a job task analysis just done here to look at what skills and competencies that people need to be effective practitioners. And, um, and I think by, by focusing more across the lines of, of jobs and, and developing more at real job opportunities for people, we'll be able to start creating some momentum. And certainly for me, and my experience here at the Academy is also that it's about, this is about human performance and, and people, not about sports psychology. So I think the more that we're collaborating with nutrition, with athletic training, physiotherapy, with strength and conditioning and coaches, now we're talking and now we have something that's really powerful. And so we have to be careful of, you know, our bias and lens that looks just from the psychological piece um, and really look about the bigger picture of, of, um, of how do we fit in and collaborate and, and put it all together. And so that, that's stuff that I'm really passionate about and interested in, in um, helping us grow and develop. And I think that, that that's relevant for, for the international community um, too. Okay, brilliant. Well, uh, good luck with it. Sounds, again, it sounds like an incredible yeah. role. Um, so I wish you the best of luck. But um, yeah, I guess that's, um, that's the end of my questions. Um, and it, it has been, it's been fantastic, honestly, to hear um, someone else's approach um, to see what you're doing and that both the well the setup that you're at seems incredible and I, I genuinely believe people have learned a lot and um, from what you've said in the podcast so um i appreciate you taking your time to do this so thank you very much uh, that's my pleasure thanks and um yeah really really happy to share and uh and engage with anything i can brilliant and i was going to say if people want to um contact you um via twitter or or email, or even if you've got a website, what would be the um, best ways to do that? Sure, Twitter might be might be the best uh, at Angus Mugford. And um, You're yeah, very, very lucky you've got a very simple Twitter. I'm jealous. Yeah, I couldn't. Yeah, I, well, you know what's funny is is uh, there is actually another Angus Mugford out there uh -huh. uh, on Twitter too, which uh, I was blown away by. But um, <laughs> Yeah, all lowercase, all one word. Uh, that that is me. So okay, brilliant. Okay, and I'm sure um, people will get in touch. But again, um, thank you very much for your time, Angus. Um, it's been great. And um, no problem. You're you're welcome. And to all the listeners, um, I hope to be back next week. I always say I hope in every single podcast. I don't have anyone in mind yet, but I'm sure I will find someone. Even though this is a few weeks ahead. But um, again, um, Angus, thank you very much, and thank you to all the listeners.